The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor teacher, Harry Reeder. If you're able, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. It'll be from your copies of God's Word, Philippians chapter 2, if you'll turn there. God's Word is true. God's Word is the truth. So if you'll turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, we're going to read verses 5 through 11, part of Paul's discipleship of the church at Philippi from prison, as he is attempting to grow them in grace. His words are very helpful to us and actually form a pattern that the writers of the Apostles' Creed are going to use, as hopefully you will see in a few moments. Would you look with me in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5? Have this mind among yourselves, which was, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being found in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore... God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The grass withers, the flower fades, God's word abides forever by his grace and mercy. May his word be preached for you. Please be seated. When you do the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. You then move to the second affirmation. And I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried. He descended into hell the third day. He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty from there. He will come to judge the quick or the living and the dead. And then, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You immediately see the creed is a statement, a credo, a faith. It focuses not on what Jesus taught, but who God is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it does so not only on who he is, but what he does as creator, redeemer, and sustainer. And you also begin to note it's in an economy of words. Um, you can even see to, it's almost got a rapid fire sense of it. It's uh, like an automatic, um, uh, an automatic um, machine. Um, you can even hear it where we are now. I believe conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead and buried. And today we are at the depth 
of the truth of the gospel. And today we are at the depth of what you just confessed from the catechism, the humiliation of Christ and the anticipation of his exaltation. You not only see there's an economy of words, but in fact, if you go back and read it in its original form as given in Latin, you will note it's exactly 100 words. And you'll note something else. Seventy-five of the words are devoted to who Jesus is and what Jesus did. The second paragraph. Seventy-five, three-fourths of it is devoted to him. And as it is devoted to him, you begin to see a pattern. Maybe I can get to the pattern this way. Perhaps you didn't have the same daddy and mother I did. Um, but not only did my, uh, my, uh, see, how can I get to this? My father was, was very pointed with me, not so much that he thought I was going to be outstanding or anything, but he said, if, the, if you do something outstanding, whether it's school or the athletic field or what, if you do something that's praiseworthy, don't you dare talk about it. Don't promote yourself. Don't do it. If you score a touchdown, that'll never happen with me. If you scored a touchdown, act like you've been there before. If you hit a home run, cross the plate, act like you've done it before. You don't need to talk about it. Don't need to do it. And by the way, my dad and mom felt they didn't need to talk about it either. <laughs> if somebody walked up to my dad and said, hey, your son looked great today, went three for four. Yeah, you know what my dad would say? Yeah, did you see that strikeout? I mean, that outside curveball killed him. Did you see it? Boy, he's got to work on that. That's where we would automatically go. So, but there was something they were doing. A mentor of mine years later put some theology around it for me. He said, Harry, whenever God blesses you and something happens that is praiseworthy, success, noteworthy, what he just gave you was a platform. Now you got to decide, are you or is he? Going to be on that platform. There's only room for one. It's either going to be you or him. Now, which one are you going to do? That's just what we call the grace-filled, grace-patterned life. Those who have been saved by grace want to live by grace. And when you live by grace, you pattern after the life of the one whose life purchased your grace. And so Peter, Paul, Jesus, Solomon, they all wanted to get this point across to us. So in the book of Proverbs, in First Peter, in James, in the Gospels, here's what it says. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Then he will exalt you. At the right time. Have you ever noticed how we take. <laughs> I didn't mean to do this, but I was about to do it. Have you ever noticed how we take pride in our request for humility? I mean, it's, it's, it's and boy, he really prayed. I, I, he's really proud of his prayers for humility. You ever notice how we ask for humility? And by the way, I think you can. Now, when you pray for humility, next thing you need to do is duck. 
That's the next thing you need to do. The answer to that prayer is usually not very enjoyable. But it's interesting. The Bible doesn't give humility so much as a prayer request as a life takeaway. It doesn't say pray for humility directly, although you can and understand the prayer, praying for it. But he really tells us to do it. He says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. So we pray, we exalt, watch, we exalt ourselves, and then we pray for humility. What God says to us is humble yourself. At the right time, I'll exalt you. That's a pattern of life that we follow, not to be saved, but because the Savior who purchased us followed that pattern to save us. Humility, then exaltation. Paul lays it out, and in a real sense, the Apostles' Creed in this second paragraph is following Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And by the way, not only Philippians 2, 5 through 11, but also 1 Corinthians 5, in, in which he is born, in which he dies according to the Scripture, and that he's raised according to the Scripture. Notice this flow where, first of all, who Jesus is, I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son, His only Son, our Lord. Then, now, what does Jesus do? Conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, Buried. We have now gone from the heavens. He has descended to the grave and buried in a tomb. And it, not only do they do that, but they then take you in anticipation of where we're going. On the third day, he rose again. And ascended into heaven and is at the right hand of God the Father from which he shall jump, from which he shall come to judge the living and the dead. So you see this clear flow of Philippians 2 in the Apostles' Creed. Now remember, the Creed is not written by apostles. It is written by those who were discipled by those who were discipled by apostles. And its value is that it distills for us the essentials of New Testament Christianity. That is how Jesus fulfills all of the promises, prophecies, symbols, and types of the Old Testament. And the apostles bring that out for us, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And the creed is putting together some, not all. Every Christian does not, every Christian believes more than what's in the Apostles' Creed. But you don't believe less. It is putting together these basic essentials. And because it's not part of inspired scripture, we have to test it by inspired scripture. So what we have done each time we're looking at these affirmations, we've gone back to the text. And in this text, it was not hard for me to navigate back to Philippians 2. Because not only does Philippians 2 emphasize dead, crucified, dead, and buried, but, but Philippians 2 is giving you the whole flow of this affirmation. That he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. What does he say? He says this. Have this mind in yourselves. It's not the mind you're, brought, you're born with. You've got another mind that exalts yourself. That's the one you're born with. You've got to get a new mind in Christ to do this. Have this mind in yourselves. Which is yours in Christ Jesus. 
Christ has purchased this for you. This mind, what is this mind? Have this mind in yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, that is, he reigns in the, in the Godhead as the Son of God, eternal with full equality, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Though he is there, he then emptied himself, that is, he laid aside, not his deity, he laid aside his privileges, have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard that equality to be grasped, held on to, but he emptied himself, and being found in appearance as a man, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. A man. By a man came death. By a man comes the resurrection of the dead. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself to the point of death. Even the death on the cross. Crucified. Dead. Buried. Now we have descended to the depth of his humiliation to save us from our sins. Yes, it is a wonderful grace pattern of life to follow. But it's his humiliation and exaltation whereby we have life in him. In other words... If he had not come, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, he could not have gone to that cross. And if he had not gone to that cross, you and I would still be in our sins. And if he was not dead, then he could not atone for our sins because the wages of sin is death. And if he was not buried, then he could not be resurrected. Crucified, dead and buried, crucified. Let me ask you a question. I'm kind of picking off of a question I had the privilege to eavesdrop a, an R.C. Sproul, John MacArthur discussion. And um, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase it for our sake a little bit. And uh, so here's, let me ask you all a question. Jesus was the son of a what? Hello? What? Carpenter. Okay, three people knew that. Wonderful. So he was the son of a carpenter. And um, and then, so do you think in a carpenter's shop it's kind of rough and you might cut yourself or you might, you know, scrape your knuckles or something like that? And he's there for 30 years. Think that might happen? Yeah, sure. If you had been standing next to Jesus and he cut his hand and out of his hand a rivulet of blood flowed. And fell upon you. Would that save you? Would you be saved from your sins? If Jesus' blood. From a cut. Fell upon you. Well your answer is. No. With great confidence. No. Why? Well first of all you already got an example. Jesus had already been cut the eighth day. He was circumcised. That pointed to the cross, but that didn't replace the cross. That didn't get the atonement done. 
Now, folks, listen, the atonement that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ as the Messiah, prophet, priest and king, that atonement was very clearly laid out in symbol, in practice and in precept and prophecy in the Old Testament. And that's this. For Jesus to get your blessing of salvation, he had to take your place for your cursing because of your sin. And that cursing is the wages of sin is death. And, but not just any death. There's a thing called the ironic blessing. May the Lord bless you and what? Keep you. That's blessing. The Lord's curse is to send you, not keep you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. We are under the curse of God's wrath. And that curse is the unendurable, unending infinite, eternal wrath of God in a place called the lake of fire, Gehenna, hell. And for you and I to be saved, that curse must be removed. And the Old Testament is clear. Now, I want you all to dig in with me just a little bit here, okay? We're going to walk away with two words. Many of you know it, some of you don't know it, but I want you to walk away with these two words. Expiation and propitiation. Expiation is to take something away, to send something away. For you to be saved, you must have Someone take your place for the curse of sin, which is to send you away under the unmixed wrath of God. Expiation. Propitiation is when a atonement that is satisfactory is made so that the payment Matches the offense, and now everything is satisfied. In the Old Testament, God not only gave us this, He told us what had to happen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Where is the curse of God? Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. There had to be a direct cursed death. You just said it. Did you hear what you just sung? Did you hear what we just sung earlier? I'm accepted because he was condemned. He paid the penalty. I'm forgiven because he was forsaken. He was sent away. In the Old Testament, it was shown by 
the scapegoat. So here is Israel. They come out of Egypt. They're out in the wilderness. God says, I'm going to be in your midst. And he makes a tent of meeting, puts it within a tabernacle. And then he gives ceremonial laws for worship. And it all centers primarily upon this glorious moment called Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. And on that day, two things happened at the tent of meeting. One is a scapegoat was brought and the priest on behalf of the people laid his hands upon the scapegoat and confessed the sins of omission, commission, thought, word, and deed, all the sins of all of God's covenant people. Then the scapegoat is sent out from the camp, sent away with the sins of all the people away from the presence of God at the tent of meeting. And he is driven out into the wilderness, outside the camp, outside the city of God, outside the gathering of God's people. Then they brought a lamb. And the lamb was slain. Anticipating the Messiah who would not only be the scapegoat of expiation to take our sins away from us as he is driven away from us, but also to make a satisfactory payment for our sins. And what happened They were in Egypt, and the torment of the plagues fell, and the darkness descended, and they went out, and the scapegoat is sent, and the lamb is slain, and they are declared the redeemed of the Lord. They're at Mount Calvary. Jesus is driven out of the city. Where would you expect? I mean, if you were there 2,100 years ago and you're there and it comes time, where would you expect the lamb to be sacrificed? Well, I know what I would expect. I would expect we'll show up at the temple and there in the before the Holy of Holies there at the temple that is there that Jesus should die for me. But Jesus doesn't die for our sins at the temple. He doesn't even die for our sins in Jerusalem. He dies for our sins outside the walls of the city, driven outside of the city, outside of the city there, the scapegoat of God has taken away our sins and the Lamb of God, spotless, pure, gives himself in our place. So not only expiation, our sins are taken away, but also propitiation, a satisfactory sacrifice is given. And what descends upon that hill? But darkness. And then what does he cry out in torment? I thirst. The scapegoat is enduring what he had prayed could be taken from him, the cup of God's 
unmixed, eternal, infinite wrath against all of our sins. And the Father tips the cup to drink the last drop. And the Son of God, now hanging between two criminals, just days earlier had been lifted up between Moses and Elijah. Now lifted up in malediction, there in affirmation, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Now, days later, lifted up between two criminals, a malediction is pronounced upon him. And he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He has been driven out of the presence of God and all of our hell is poured out upon him and he drinks it to the last drop and then the lamb who was given for us says Tetelestai it's finished it is finished and our sins are no more They have been taken from us as far as the east is from the west. And we are redeemed, not by a martyr's death, not by a revolutionary's death, not even by a model death. We are redeemed by an atoning death, cursed, the divine wrath of God. Upon him who hangs on the tree, which is why he kept saying, I must go to Jerusalem. I must be delivered over and I will die on the cross and be crucified. But on the third day. He will rise again. But this day suffered under Pontius Pilate. Crucified, then dead. Remember, the Gospels record the report ascends back to Pontius Pilate. And when it arrives to Pontius Pilate, a Pontius Pilate is incredulous. What do you mean dead? He shouldn't be dead yet. I mean, this is too quick. He shouldn't be dead. I mean, this should be taking place hours later. But no, he's dead. And just as a sovereign God had orchestrated the presence of a Roman Empire to bring a capital form of judgment, and that's a cross, in order for us to be redeemed on that cross. Because if he had been put to death under Jewish law, what would have happened to him? He'd have been stoned. But curses would reign upon the one who hung on the tree. And just as a sovereign God had orchestrated all of that for our redemption, now this sovereign God does not have his life taken from him. He freely gives it up. No man takes his life. He freely gives it up. He says, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Pilate wants to affirm it, so he sends centurion. And a centurion there will not only affirm the death, 
but will give an order not to break his legs. Again, fulfilling scripture. The, this one hanging on the tree is not the victim. He's the victor. And he even assures the promises of God. Not one bone will be broken. And the centurion declares, surely this is the son of God. Then, in the midst of all of it, a spear is secured and driven into his side. And the separated water and blood revealing his death flows. And he's taken down. The body secured for burial. And on the day of preparation, he's prepared for burial. Seventy-five pounds of spices, the one who had been attended at his birth with frankincense and myrrh is now encased with it, crucified, dead, but no man takes his life. He freely gives it for us and then buried. But this sovereign Savior keeps revealing his authority. What's interesting about buried is where he wasn't buried. Where was he supposed to be buried? By Roman practice. It's a Roman, it's a Roman crucifixion. And it's a Roman crucifixion that has been carried out by the oversight of Roman authorities. It's a criminal death. What do they do with the criminals? Well, they throw them in the trash heap. The very place that Jesus himself earlier had used as a symbol and metaphor for the eternal judgment of hell. Gehenna. It was the trash heap that its smoke goes up ever because it is ever burning what is thrown into it. There in the valley of Hinnom, Gehenna, the valley of Hinnom, in that place where the trash and the criminal bodies are thrown, his was not. But again, a sovereign savior is saying, his body, by the petition of Joseph of Arimathea, whom the scripture takes great delight in revealing to us is a rich man who has been secretly following Christ. Now, no longer is silent. He comes to Pontius Pilate, likely because of the accessibility of his wealth. And he asks for the body and he receives it. And now another secret Follower comes forth, Nicodemus, the one that would follow him by night. And the two with the women prepare his body on the day of preparation so that the Lord of the Sabbath, who has redeemed us and given us eternal rest in his redeeming work, will rest in the grave on the Sabbath. So here on this first day, he is being placed in the grave. On the second day, he will raise, he will rest. And on the third day, he will come again. But he first will be buried. No resuscitation. It will require a resurrection. 
crucified, dead, not swooned, dead, buried, darkness again descends, the stone is rolled in front, the seal and the guards are placed, and he's buried. But folks, I don't want to overdo this, but I can't help but think this. What's coming? The resurrection, the ascension, the second coming. What's coming is exaltation. Here we're at the depth of humiliation, yet at the very depth of humiliation, there's a gleam of anticipation. No trash heap. Fulfillment of scripture, a new, unused, borrowed tomb. And his grave is assigned with the rich. He has been abandoned by his father at the cross as he becomes our sin. But in his burial, we are anticipating he will not be abandoned to Sheol. He will not be abandoned to the grave. Look at the grave that was secured for him, but cannot secure him, for he will rise. Crucified, dead, and buried. So let me give you a takeaway and then we'll close in prayer. I, you probably guessed that I had asked John that we could sing this glorious hymn, sometimes called Glorious Day. Um, I grew up under hearing it called One Day. And this glorious hymn of One Day is one that has captured my heart. And I love it, particularly in light of the Apostles' Creed. The first verse speaks of the conception and virgin birth. The second verse of his crucifixion and death and burial. And then finally, uh, the third verse, and then finally comes his res- uh, the promise of his coming. So we've got his, his birth, we have his death and crucifixion, we have his resurrection, and then we have his second coming. But I love that flow. Living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified freely forever. And oh, he's coming again. What a glorious day. This day suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and buried. Three days is the Lord's day. He'll be raised, He will ascend, and then on that day, He will come again. Or if I could put it in these words. On this day. We call it Good Friday in Holy Week. Because of what he accomplishes. On this day. Christ suffered. Was crucified. Dead. And buried. You know. May I pause here just for a moment. You probably remember a couple of weeks ago, I made the point not only that there's a 
few words, but it's interesting to me. We go, we follow the pattern of 1 Corinthians 15 and Philippians 2. We go straight from the birth of Jesus to the day of the death. We go straight from the day of his birth, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And then we go to the day of his death. And there's 33 years in there, and it doesn't say anything about it. But maybe I spoke too soon. Maybe. And I'll have to, I understand I'm pressing right now, but I want to press. Maybe his 33 years are covered with one word. Suffered. Under Pontius Pilate. It's an interesting word that they chose, isn't it? Suffered. Now, it immediately attaches back to Isaiah 52 and 53 that the Messiah would be a suffering Messiah, a suffering servant, despised, rejected and forsaken of men. And you wouldn't even be able to recognize him in his sufferings. But maybe there's something more. Let me ask you a question. When somebody goes to court and gets a judgment and a sentence that's commiserate with their uh, commiserate with their uh, penalty, do you say they're suffering? Now, here's what you usually say. Well, they got what they deserved. But in this human court, Jesus didn't get what he deserved. In fact, Pilate knows that. Pilate knows this suffering ought not to take place. Even the suffering on the way to the cross. The only reason he allows it is not because the law demands it. This is, he's not a textualist. He is merely making a political, cultural decision. Uh, he, he actually tries to get out of it five times. He sends him to Caiaphas. He sends him to Annas. He sends him to Herod. He sends him to the people. Who do you want me to exchange for you? He, he is trying everything he can to get out from this. Why? Because 10 times he makes a verdict on the 33 years of Jesus' life. Innocent. No guilt. No evil. In that court, he's innocent. But that court can't bring the right judgment. Yet Jesus, in that court, never claims innocence because he knows he's standing In another court. And he's taking your place and my place. And in the court of God, he is not innocent. He is bearing our guilt and our shame to take it away as the scapegoat of God. This one innocent becomes guilty for us. On this day, Christ suffered was crucified, dead and buried in place of me. But on the Lord's day, he arose and declares he will prepare a place for me. And on that day, he will come again for me. What about you? You know, in the midst of this death, burial, and uh, this death, burial, and crucifixion, he's saving men and women. A criminal will confess him on this very day that he is suffering, dead, buried, crucified. On this day, arguably, a centurion is converted. This must be the Son of God. 
on this day a secret, silent follower who wasn't even at the trial in the Sanhedrin will finally find his voice. Do you see your sovereign Savior orchestrating entire empires to put in place a crucifixion whereby an atonement could take place? Do you see your Savior in sovereign, sovereign rule who gives up his life, no man takes it? Do you see your Savior sovereignly assigning his own burial place and the Roman authorities uh, agree to it, which he has already prophesied hundreds of years before. It is this sovereign Savior who is sufficient to save. And on this day, a criminal is brought into the kingdom. This day you will be with me in paradise. And on this same day, a centurion will give a confession that I pray is at least the nugget of his conversion. This must be the Son of God. And on this day, a coward, silent, secret follower will find his voice. And he'll stand up. And he'll speak up. And Joseph of Arimathea will be numbered with the people of God who put their trust in him. Who went to the cross for us. Who died. Who was buried. And who will be risen. One of the passages of scripture that strike me. You know what I love? Mark describes. You know how Mark describes this? He says this. Joseph of Arimathea. Who secretly followed Jesus. On this day. Took Courage. And I immediately go to John 16.33. In me. Where Jesus says. In the world. You will have tribulation. In me. You have peace. Take. Courage. I. Crucified. Dead, buried, risen. I have overcome the world. Let's pray. I love the Bible that says what happened on Good Friday. Suffered, crucified, dead and buried. I love the Bible that tells me what happened on the third day. He rose again. I love the Bible that tells me. Not only was on the day was Jesus born, a day was he crucified, dead and buried and suffered. A day he was resurrected. But it tells me there is that glorious day that he's coming again. To take us to the place he prepared for us. But it is only for those. Whom he took their place on the cross. Have you come to him? As your placeholder and Savior, Lord, King, and Redeemer. Will you find your voice with the heart man believes and with the mouth he confesses that Christ is Lord?
Will you confess him through the power of grace brought and grace bought courage? Take courage. I've overcome. If you'd like to pray with someone, I would love to pray with you. But you can go right to the Lord right now. And for those of you who have already come to the Lord, will you this day take courage? And in an increasing hostility, not get angry at men, but find your voice. And take courage to confess Christ. They need the Savior. Proclaim Him. Jesus, I pray this in your matchless name. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reader, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.